Today, I'm going to be talking with the co-hosts of the amazing award-winning podcast, Dear White Women. Sarah Blanchard and Misasha Suzuki-Graham are both going to be here with me today talking about the N-word and the violence against the Asian American community and everything in between. They're going to be breaking it down, the hard topics that they know so much more than me. So buckle up. Hello, everyone. This is Meredith with a Y, and I am your host, Meredith Willits. Today, we are going to go deep, changing lives, and I am giving you the keys to the castle. And so we're here, and we're discussing, and it's a hot day temperature-wise in the entire world, in the news cycle, and we're coming in hot today. I mean, that's just the way that it is. And I really have left some really big topics up to you two. I'm really leaning into you two for a lot of your knowledge, your intelligence. You've been doing this for, you know, a lot of episodes over on Dear White Women. And, you know, I, I hate to lean in on you, but you were kind enough and gracious enough to help us through this. So thank you and welcome. Thanks so much for having us thank and for you. having these conversations. Yeah. And I've said in many other episodes of this people of color segment series that we're going to actually get to the really hard topics. And today I really wanted to discuss with you guys. I was at a dinner party. Someone says, well, how come black people are allowed to say the N-word and what my white kid wants to sing that same rap and they shouldn't say it and yada, yada. And I was stymied. I honestly, I didn't know how to respond to that. And you guys were nice enough to say that you would help me through that. So all it's the floor is yours. <laughs> So I think with regard to the N-word, it's really important to understand the history of that word, to understand why it's never okay for someone who's not Black to use that word. So the word was first really coined to refer to skin, the skin color of the slaves that were being brought from Africa to the United States for slave labor. And I think that when you have a word that starts from that level, right, that that is already in a caste system that is used to refer to the to a skin color that is used to refer to a group of people that are basically being taken from their country and exploited for labor, there's already a history in that word, right? And then I think you look at how that word has been used throughout time. And I'm going to get to the use of Black people's use of this word in a second, because I, mm -hmm. I think that's that is separate and should be discussed separately. But that word has never been used in this country in a way that hasn't been associated with hate, right? And violence. It is the word that white people would use to refer to their slaves. It was the word that white people would use in reference to lynchings. It is the word that white people use in reference to church bombings that killed girls, young girls. It's been that word throughout time. And it's been the word that is filled with such hate and violence that you can't separate the use of that word in, let's say, a rap song from that history of hatred if you're not a Black person. There's not a gray area here in use of the N-word, right? It's, it is unacceptable because in using that word, even if you're singing along, you're still perpetuating that hate and violence, even unintentionally, right, with your use of that word. I think what is interesting, Sarah, jump in, like if I <laughs> get this wrong, because we talk about this in our upcoming book, but 
you know, we talk about also how the N word when it was first pronounced, right. And first brought to this country, it has a hard ER at the end. And that hard ER is really that white pronunciation. That is that hate filled pronunciation too. the actual slaves that were brought here had a hard time using the ER ending because that was not common in their, in their West African and African languages. That sound, so they, that the right, ER the sound, er got sound. It. yeah. Got so it. they actually softened it to an A sound, like an open sound at the end. And you hear that in like black vernacular too. You hear that in songs, you hear that. And that has been adopted. That was an adopted use of the term for slaves to refer to each other. So I think mm. that people, you know, use those words interchangeably. They're not interchangeable. And then again, you still, but you still have that word being used by slaves to refer to each other, right? You're still in a position of servitude, one that you didn't choose. You're still, so even using that word with a softer sound doesn't make it any better if you're not black, right? And, and I think that it's very, there are words in our language that we use and we take back the power and we change those words for the better. But if you're not being affected by those words, if that violence and that those words aren't directed at you, you're not being able to change. You're, you don't have that ability to take that word and change that meaning. Right? Yeah. yeah, no, that that's so clear. That's so clear to me. And I think the, the upshot of it is white people should never ever use that word. And also we shouldn't criticize other people who are black people for using it. And I, it is a very different example because basically in the English language, there is no word that will shame a white person in the same way that this word can shame a black person, right? So there's no, there's no equivalent that we can flip and use hurtfully. So all the more reason not to use it. But in terms of just a, a, a sort of example that might make it easier for people to understand, how many times have you been with a group of women who are like, hey, bitches, like, right? right. I mean, and you said we could swear, which is why yeah. I'm saying it. <laughs> of course. But if a man said that, right. could you imagine? Like, really? Right. It would right. be like, no, you can't use that word. So that's sort of the relatable example for women that I want people to feel. Yeah. To understand why that's not okay. Yeah. And, and that's how a lot of this for me started is I was in a group and someone of color said the N word in a post and I was, but I didn't know their color. I really didn't. I, I just saw the N word and I was like, it'd be so nice if in here <laughs> we could not use the N word. And then I was inviscerated <laughs> because it, you know, I, it was a person of color saying it. I didn't go that deep. And they're like, don't police the way I talk. I can say whatever I want, you know, but I came from a very white place of saying we don't say that word as an umbrella kind of concept. I did need to do more research and go and see the profile maybe or whatever and see what they were referencing. But then I did start to I knew I should never say it. My kids should never say it. No one should ever say it that is white. But then, like I said, it got tricky the other day when I didn't know how to say the argument. And basically the argument is, is when it comes up in a song, don't speak and tell your kids that it's never okay because it perpetuates this hate, anger and violence. It's Absolutely. perpetuating. And I think what you just said is critical we have to tell our kids this, mm -hmm. you know, I want to make it clear that kids are being called this in the public school system. I mean, and my, I think she was probably in third grade at the time. We, we have these conversations in our home. My kids present as white and 
my daughter, having already been prepared that this was like an unacceptable word, came home one day and said, hey, so-and-so was called the N-word at school today. And I was like, oh my gosh, tell me what happened. And she knew the significance of it and helped the child make sure that the teacher was aware of it. Like it comes up, kids are using this word. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's really important as the mother of black sons, right? Right. My husband knows the exact time, Mm. the first time that he was called the N-word, right? I know that my kids will be called the N-word. And I I know that there is going to be that first time, right? And and I'm just, I'm hoping it's not from a white mom, like other stories I've heard, but I, I know the power and the hatred that's going to be behind that word. So even if they're called it on, you know, in a, even if the intent of the speaker is not to potentially be hurtful, although I have a hard time differentiating that word from anything that's not hurtful, right? The impact will be devastating. And so I I think, you know, speaking as as a mother, right, that is one of those moments that you want to protect your children from till the end of time, and I can't do it. And so I need everyone's help to help me protect my kids and kids who are like them. Because those kids who were called the N-word in the 30s and the 40s, they ended up in lakes. They ended up on on trees. This is not that far from our immediate history. And as we've Mm -hmm. seen in these past couple of years, it still is our current present. So I, I think that's where we need everyone to really understand this. And for those of you that don't know the Dear White Women podcast. The origin, the the crux of it is, hey, white people, especially white women, we really need to use your privilege to change the world. And 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 here's a hundred episodes how. <laughs> here's a hundred episodes why. And here's my two brown sons. And here's my half Asian children. And I need you guys to do this for all of us, but for especially my kids, for especially my brown children who could have been one of those killed this morning. I I think when you are a mother of Black kids, and I think this goes for other oppressed people, right? You have, you carry with you a list of the ways in which your kids could die. And every time you hear of another killing, you add that to the list, right? And I think that is hard for white parents perhaps to understand because you don't walk around with those fears, right? Nope. It, it is just not something that you consider, right? But when Ahmaud Arbery was killed, right? I added like running in a neighborhood, you know, Breonna Taylor sleeping being killed in killed in your killed in your house, right? Killed in, in your bed, being so, so killed. Right. George Floyd, you know, like Writing suffocating, yeah, uh, being killed on the street, like an animal, right? And I think every time you hear these, you add those to that list of how your kids could die. And I think as parents, we all have those those visceral fears, especially when our kids are so young, right? That like something happens and our kids are gone, taken from us. And I think that those fears, those are what we understand, right? And, And if you can comprehend that other parents are living that day after day, right? That can't be okay. Because if we have children who are unsafe, right? No child is really safe. And I think we need to lean hard into that, right? Because fundamentally, we don't want our kids to be unsafe, any kid, right? But when my kid's safety is being threatened by what your kids may know or do, that's something that we can talk about and we need to talk about. Yeah, because that kid at school that used the N-word 
they learned it somewhere and it became okay. And it wasn't like there was no, that, that conversation was not happening at the dinner table. And this is what I keep talking about in this series in People might be sick of hearing it. And, and I know that it's really kind of a racist statement, but I don't have to worry about it. I don't think about it. I don't have to worry about it. It's not my problem because I have white skin. And that should never be the reason that it's okay for anyone to die or to just look the other way. And we talked about this in our pre-interview. If white women, and I have, I mean, when I tell you I wake up and sleep to this sentence, <laughs> I'm telling you, because I'm, tr- I'm, I'm in it. If white women would start to love themselves more and not have that self-hatred and that tearing each other up as white women, tearing up self when getting dressed in the morning or just having that just that voice, it would literally change the world. It would literally change because when I have anger and hatred and resentment living inside of me, that shit spews everywhere. It's in my kids. It's in my marriage. It's in my friendships. It's in my conversations. It's in the music I listen to. It's everywhere. It seeps into everything. And so this really starts with us and women, as we just spoke about earlier, when we first started talking today is we need to identify as women first and not white. Because so many of us go, well, I'm a white person. I'm friends with this guy over here who just stormed the Capitol. This is, this is who I'm aligning myself with. And what we were just talking about is we need to start aligning ourselves with the women, period, of color, descent, religion, whatever, and say, you know what? This is, needs to be a sisterhood. It starts with us. It starts with us, all of us ladies. And I realize as we say that, I mean, I'm a big fan of evaluating our communities more consciously, sort of looking at all your friend groups and making sure we're aware of who's in it and what gaps are we aware of that we can build stronger relationships in for ourselves. The reality is for a lot of women, it does make sense to align with the partners that they're with. You know, the way our society is structured largely you know, there's church communities, there's your family communities, there's, there's other places you belong. And sometimes it can feel really threatening to maybe stand up and say, I'm a woman first, but this is a very broad brush statement. Yeah. You know, women tend to be the relationship builders. That is sort of traditionally and largely a thing that women do well. There's a reason why of the three different ways to process information in a healthy way, you can write about it or you can talk about it. And if you just sit there in your own silo and ruminate about it, it's not that great for you. But women tend to be really good at talking and having girlfriends and and building community. And it's up to us to to start having those conversations because we have so much power that we don't even realize we have. Yeah. And like you said at the just a little while ago, it's actually good for all of us to stop expecting perfection of ourselves and dehumanizing ourselves. We do need the sleep. We do need time to exercise. We do benefit from relationships. We don't have to just chase money and power at the expense of everything else, because you know what? That system is bad for all of us, but that's related to the system of dehumanizing everybody, people of color. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as we move into the feminine of, of women, I mean, I really do. I mean, they say we've been saying this for decades that women are really the creators of education and community and change. And I know for a fact that the transformation that I've gone 
from, as I said, in another podcast episode was, you know, I was at Kent State and I thought I was going to be a teacher for five minutes and they made me do a lesson plan and use all these different ethnic names within the lesson plan. And I remember seeing the going, what a crock of shit. This is so stupid. Why can't I just use Jim and Jenny and Sue? Why do I have to use, you know, these different names at, to work it into this multicultural? I was t- like going to teach math. Like, and you learn, you become. And I know that through my path, my husband has gotten better. My four children have gotten better. My friend group has gotten better. I'm able to articulate. So with one woman, I'm changing my little, my little planet, my little, you know, area. And I think that, you know, we don't always, my husband will a lot of times say like, I don't understand that. And it's up to me to, to, to push it, you know, I think, and we can all do that. And I, I think we have this great moment right now, right? We are a year into this pandemic and I think we've seen how women have been hit hard, right? Across the board in so many ways, right? And leaving the workforce. And because we don't have help with childcare, because we don't have universal health care in, in the way that we need it, because we don't have elder care, right? A lot of those responsibilities go to women or the people who mother, right? In our society. And I, I think wouldn't it be great, right? If we could align, because we know that as women, we all suffer, right? When we are not able to take advantage of things that benefit all of us. Wouldn't it be great if this could push us to to get there, to align as all women, because we know what's missing. We know what we need help with on a, a large scale. And we have that numerical majority number, right? Just slightly in the United States, but we do have it. So now we could really go and get things done, but we have to align as women first. Yeah. Well, and the other part of it too, what you said me, Sasha, really triggered this thought, which is it's okay for us to be angry about it. You know, we had a very fascinating conversation with Soraya Shamali of uh, Rage Becomes Her. And in, in that book, I mean, the realization that we are usually as women, as girls socialized to not express anger, we are supposed to cry or be sad or express our frustration in other ways. But in order to adequately be able to express anger, and I'm not talking about like flying off the handle, getting rage and like shooting people up, right? That is an unhealthy expression as we just witnessed in, in Atlanta. Like, like we're not supposed, that, that is not what I'm advocating. What I'm saying is we are allowed to stand in our truth and say something does not feel right for me and I need it to change. But in order to feel justified in expressing that anger, going back to your comment, Meredith, earlier about us needing to have self-love, what they found was that we can't objectify ourselves. If we are so used to being objectified and seeing ourselves through other people's eyes and gauging sort of before you step out and say that thing, well, how is that going to land? And and how do I need to make sure it makes everybody else comfortable first? We're not going to do it. We need to be confident in ourselves and love ourselves and love our needs and boundaries hard. And then we can stand up for ourselves and everybody else with this sense of sort of righteous anger that hello, the systems are not where they need to be to make this life possible. Our children need better. We need better. Our our workers need better in order, because we do live in an interconnected society. You know, you see even small things like the Texas storms then led to certain grocery stores not having produce. Like we are very interconnected and anybody who thinks otherwise, I hope you live in like, a shelter and a bunker and you grow your own food and you are off the grid 
because otherwise everything you're doing relies on other people. And, and it's time that we recognize that. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, as you're sitting there talking about that, that self-love. And I remember the night before my dear white people episode came out. And I mean, there was not enough tequila to go around for me to get through to be able to sleep because I was so nervous. You were on fire there. I know. <laughs> a little on fire. You guys bring the brains. I'll, I'll bring the crazy passion. <laughs> but I was so nervous for putting myself out there and and all my thoughts and all my passion and anger and frustration. And there's been a couple, I mean, I've had conversations with family, close family and friends and said, stop calling it the China virus. You cannot use that in my presence. Uh, besides the fact that it's wrong, let's just start with that. But my daughter's one of her best friends is adopted from China. And this is causing violence against Asian Americans. And you well, guys both know, you know, your parents, you have a parent that's Asian and you understand the fear behind our leadership or anybody targeting by way of fear mongering and hate based verbalization and, and language, it has a repercussion. When we say the N word, when we say the China virus, when we say these horribly angry, gross things, PS, it starts inside. Just like you said, that starts in me. That means I hate myself somewhere that I want to make someone feel just as shitty as I feel. And I want to bring them down so that I feel better. To me, that's the, men the mental piece inside of this. And, and that's where I want all my white listeners and anyone else who's listening to understand if that is living inside of you, that's living in you. That's just not a word. You're trying to bring down a culture. You're trying to bring down a people. And, and that's where we were at this morning with the shooting in Atlanta. That was someone that hated and learned to hate and learned that it was okay to hate. And here we are. It matters. I think that internal external bridges is totally right on. You know, to this moment, we don't know that they, that, that person targeted Asian people. But the reality is they wound up killing six Asian women at their place of employment. And the impact given, especially the broader context of what you just mentioned with this hate towards Asian Americans increasing because of the virus. It, it's shocking. It, the impact of it, regardless of that person's intent, is very, very harmful. What I find frustrating, I mean, Sasha, I'm, I'm, I know I've sort of jumped in here, but like, and I want to hear what you have to say. I, I feel like, you know, I'm the daughter of a Japanese mother. And through this whole virus, I have had moments where I'm like, I hope she's being safe. I think she's okay where she's living, going grocery shopping. I just want to make sure it's just a tiny nugget of fear that I have and always, and I've always carried through this virus. And now mm -hmm. you see this kind of hate continuing to manifest in murder. And you see this sort of treatment that they're, this person's already getting in the media with excuse making and mental health and all of this sort of stuff. And you're like, I'm sorry, mental health is absolutely a incredibly you know, big concern in this country. We need to normalize that. We need to offer more support and have an outpouring of all sorts of programming and, and support for it. But there are a lot of people who have mental health challenges who do not go around killing people. Can we stop using that excuse to give a white man a pass? Yeah. Because I don't think the person of color who may have done something like this would ever be given that benefit of the doubt. Yeah. It's inappropriate how we are having holding this double standard up in the media, because I think that's how we wind up internalizing it. We, if we don't critically question every bit of news media that we take in, 
we sort of take it in hook, line and sinker and we go, oh, well, they maybe maybe had a mental health problem. I think, you know, what what I think about, and I'm going to take this back to my freshman year political science class for a second, because I know that's where we all want to go. Uh, I you didn't know, take but, that class. I don't know. <laughs> I took it. The, the very sort of the first tenant that we learned about political science is when you want to distract from a domestic issue, you focus attention on a foreign threat, right? And I think we have seen how that works in our own country over the past several years, in particular during those past four years of the Trump administration, right? You can hide domestic problems by focusing on a foreign threat, even if that perceived foreign threat is in your own country, right? And I think that's what he did with terms like the China flu, right? And, and But the repercussions of that are extreme. And so what Sarah was saying about her fears for her Japanese mother, you know, my I have a Japanese father, and I have felt that same way throughout this pandemic, you know, with regard to his safety, right? And and I and now with the violence escalating, I feel somewhat similarly and concerned about my Japanese father that I do about my black husband and sons. And I think that comes from the othering, right? We're so good at creating an other, right? A, a foreign threat, whether it's color threat, right, to whiteness, or it is a nationality threat to through the term China virus. I think we have bought into that, right? We And because it allows us to distract ourselves from our internal issues, right? And our domestic issues, but in this case, our internal issues as well. And so I, I think that there is real power in doing that. And it's that exact thing that we need to be very cognizant of when those terms come out, when we hear those things, because that's what it's trying to do. And that was very similar to what has happened in other countries in order to create you know, conflict that led to that was sort of Hitler's Germany, right, where the exact same political strategy was used. So I don't think we can be complacent about this and and how this is now playing out. Like we have to draw the line. Yeah. You know, what you just said reminded me also, you know, you talked about the skin color and the nationality, but let's also not forget the power of religion. How many times has this country vilified, you know, the Muslim faith when have we looked at extreme Christianity in this country? Have we looked at, and so we need to look at white supremacy as a general (laughs) thousands of years of murder in Christianity. Let's be clear. Yeah. I mean, it's uncomfortable to look at for sure. If you're in that population, it's really uncomfortable, but if we're going to, I think the answer is to not group like religions without understanding that there are very many nuances within it and and not generalize based on a few extreme characteristics. And yet we need to be aware of the extreme characteristics that are very inherent in uh, the religions that are predominant in the United States, the religion, I guess. Yeah. And what you guys were, you were talking about earlier, Sarah, about the idea of being sensitive and or being angry, I should say, and 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 finding that anger and it being healthy or unhealthy and being able to gauge. I was actually just watching uh, Jeffrey. He's on a TikToker, LGBTQ, and he, he talks about love. And he was talking about how the word sensitive is used on women. You're being too sensitive to kind of gaslight and make us feel stupid. But no one ever says anything about being sensitive and then having an anger reaction. Because any emotion, be it negative or crazy or sad, like all we need to understand that emotions and that we 
we need to kind of dial it back and let people have healthy emotions and not gaslight them by calling them, you're being too emotional, you're being too sensitive. No, I'm having a healthy reaction to my friend's kids being targeted. I'm having, I'm getting angry that you keep saying these horrible things like the China virus or the N word or whatever the hell else it is. I'm mad about it and I'm not being sensitive. So stop trying to quiet me, you know? And that's, that's something that we need to look we're not going to be quiet. We're going to be sensitive because people get killed when we're not sensitive. People get, people die. George Floyd threw me into a tailspin that I've yet to be able to get. When I even think about what he was saying when he was on the ground, I've yet to remove myself from that. But here's the question. How many white people can feel that level of empathy for someone who looks different than them? I don't know if anybody, I mean, I don't, what struck, I think white women in that moment was the word mom. Had he not set, called for his mother, I can't, I mean, I can't. Had he not called for his mother, there would not be the, the solidarity that we saw in the marches, in the streets, in this past year. I don't, I don't think it would have been as powerful as it became. The solidarity came, and maybe this is the answer that we've been looking for, is the, was the word mom. It, 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 I think it shattered a lot of white women. I think it did. I think about like mothering. And I was holding my second son, right? I have two boys when Tamir Rice mm. was killed, right? 12 years old, killed, carrying, you know, not a weapon. Right. And I think that when my kids ask if they can carry their Nerf guns around our neighborhood, my answer is always no, because, you know, and, and I, I would like, white moms, right. To think like, do you think twice about your kids carrying like anything around the neighborhood, right. Running around with their friends, but I am definitely not going to let my kids do that. Right. Because you don't know what, what, what neighbor is going to think what, right. Trayvon Martin was killed when I was pregnant with my first son, right. By some neighborhood vigilante who decided to take matters into his own hands. And I think that, again, you know, it goes back to, you know, as a mother, right, you have fears for your kids. And if we do, if, if that moment for George Floyd, right, really was a visceral reaction for white women, which I hope it was, I hope it was for everyone, right, then, then that is what we have to keep remembering, right? It, it, I think it's easy to sort of slide into what, what, you know, we're busy, right? Like what, what is our realities? But I think it's very important to recognize that there are so many realities out there, right? And, and the reality is for me, my kids are not going to be walking around with their Nerf guns this summer, you know, or water guns or anything that remotely looks like a weapon because my older son is getting to that point where he's no longer cute, right? He is going into the threatening level because if you're, if you're a black kid, right? A black boy, you go from cute to threatening. There is no like handsome looking adolescent, right? You're not, you're not in that you're, you're a threat. And so I don't, and he's this kid who smiles at everyone. You know, he wants everyone to love him. He loves everyone. He wants to save animals, right? He thinks that, you know, we need to think about what fish we eat, which is what he was telling me yesterday about sustainable fishing. (laughs) But, you know, this is the kid that people will see on the street and be like, He's, you know, he's tall for his age. Like, how yeah. old is he really? What is he doing in this predominantly white neighborhood? How Not do we thinking undo that. that. How do we undo it? I thought about my first night at Kent State. My mom dropped me off a night before my roommate was there. So I was alone. 
and three big black probably football players because they always go there early walk down the hall and at last night I was laying in bed trying to like dissect it like if they were three big white football players would I have been equally as nervous and I, I scaled it down to I was probably a nine scared because they were big three of them black and I was by myself and I probably could have got it down to like a 6.5 had they been white just because I was alone by myself a woman they're large you know etc how do we undo I mean like I keep saying in these podcasts is we need to unlearn all the crap that we've been you know piled on with tv and movies and and our parents and our church and our school and our friends and you know media and you know, a 30 straight minutes every night of black people on the news destroying the city because clearly they're the only ones doing anything wrong. Like that is really training my white brain and my listeners white brains to think that only black people do bad things. And that's why it's not disproportionate that they are in jail. They are as proportionate as it should be because they're the only ones that do bad things because that's what they show me on the news. That's what's on the radio. You're, yeah. you're totally right. And and I think in terms of stuff, because it's misrepresentation, they've right. done so many different studies that talk about how in the news and in the TV and in the movies, black families are disproportionately painted as poor compared to white families. And they're also a disproportionate linkage to criminality compared to white families. Like the white families are underrepresented compared to the population and the actual facts and, and vice versa. And I think there's no there's no like 10 point program to undo this. If we, we had figured that we out, that would be fantastic. But that's why this is, I always say this is more of an art than a science, but there are some fundamental things that need to be done. You know, one is those practical little things that you can do. Like, let's start with practical steps because sometimes you fake it till you make it, right? Yeah. Talk to your kids about the N-word. Smile at the Black person and recognize them in the store. See them, don't unsee them. You know, these little things that, you know, Misash and I often talk about that you can do, have these conversations, critically analyze the TV shows that you're watching. Like, start doing the little things. Then... I think it's important to learn about the history because and and the structures that are in place. Like, do a little self-education. Read the books, watch the TV shows, watch the incredible amount of resources that are out there to just learn because, to be honest, it's not taught equally in the school systems. Yeah. I think we've dug up stats that show that slavery was mentioned like over a hundred times in the Massachusetts textbooks and like three times if you grew up in Louisiana. There's a huge disparity of information out there. So we need to put it on ourselves to look for the facts. And, and if anybody needs resources, you, us, like there, there's a ton out there. We can point you in the right direction. I think a third part of it is humanize Black people. There's such good platforms out there to just see Black people, Asian people, just like, you know, like that whole segment in People Magazine or wherever it's like celebrities, they're just like us. You know what? <laughs> Black people, they're just like us. Asian people, they're just like us. Like we we have to remember that humanity. We are, you know, like Misasha, you just said about your son who's interested yeah. in sustainable fishing, like catch yourself when you're othering a person, when you have this judgment based on their appearance or what you know about the group that they belong in. Like mm. that applies across the board because I think we have to remember our commonalities in order to get over the othering. And that's a practice and a discipline that we just, it's a, a perpetual practice. Yeah. Yeah. I think also, you know, Sarah, to your last point about seeing people as people, right? I think that, you know, we're coming 
coming up, we just came out of Black History Month, right? And during Black History Month, there was an incredible number of television commercials that featured Black families doing normal things, right? And my my son noticed that and he's like, do you think there'll be this many Black people or people who look like us in commercials once Black History Month is over? And I, you know, I was like, honestly, no, I don't think so. But I think, you know, we have relegated sort of Black history to a month, right? When Black history is America is U.S. history, right? Black history, Latino history is U.S. history, right? Asian history, Asian American history is U.S. history. And that in those months, we focus on civil rights leaders, right? And people who sort of have done amazing things, which is great. But if you're kids and in particular white kids, right, are just reading about civil rights leaders, they're never going to see the kid down the street as as someone besides, you know, perhaps the color, right, of their skin. I think that in our house, it's really important for kids, our kids to see, to have books with protagonists that look like them, you know, and to, to be very intentional about the books and the media that you choose to have your family watch and watch it together. You know, there are shows out there with Black families doing normal family things, right? But a lot of times, and, and you know, Sarah knows about my reality TV show thing, but, you know, I think that we have bought into things like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, right? Which show white bachelors, white bachelorettes. And if you've got one Black bachelor, one Black bachelorette in the 25 years of, you know, this show's history, which seems impossible that they couldn't find any single like Black people along the way or anyone else for that matter. They're the troublemakers, right? But we have these shows that people buy into and and watch and, and follow and are passionate about, which continue to perpetuate these stereotypes that we see in society. So it's it's important to really be intentional about how you're consuming media and it comes in, in all forms. You know, I, I think that when I'm thinking about my kids and, and who, and the books that they read, right? It, Sarah, do you remember that when we were talking to Alvin Irby, I think he was saying that it's easier to get a book published that has animals as the main character than to have it be a protagonist who's not white, wow. right? For children's books. So I, I think that we buy more of the books of non-white protagonists, sell more, they'll publish more books with non-white protagonists, right? Vote and, with and your dollar, yeah, vote with yeah, your dollar. And, and those are who you want your kids to see, all, all races, all religions, right? All, you know, transgender, disability, you, you want your kids to be exposed as early as possible, and then you're learning along with them. So I think that it can't be understated, that part. I wish I had the stats because going back to our earlier conversation about how we as women can band together and make change, uh, I'm sure you can dig this up, but I think women control the majority of the spending in this country. I just can't remember the exact number that it was. Yeah. Where are we putting our family's money? Where are we putting our money? Can we more intentionally deal with, like we always joke, I mean, yes, I'm on Amazon Prime. It is very convenient to get things like in two-day delivery. But if nothing, if, if that thing is not urgent, can I go support a independent store owned by a black person, a woman, a Latina, uh, you know, like there's so many different ways that our money can go further if we don't just do the easy thing. And, and I'm not saying that anti-racism or feminism or womanism or any of this stuff has to be hard. It doesn't have to be this extra layer. It's just changing your behavior patterns of what you were already going to do anyway and making choices more intentionally. If you were going to buy a book for your child anyway, why not buy the book 
that features a different character. If you were going to buy a candle as a housewarming present for someone anyway, why not buy it from a store owner that's not Target, you know? Yeah. And it's so interesting because you were just talking about normalizing the other. And for myself, I never, I know this is going to sound really stupid and I'm okay. I never thought that an Asian person was like another race. And this sounds nuts until I was watching Real Housewives of Dallas and the, they have a, an Asian gal on and she was talking about how she was treated poorly by kids when she was younger, making fun of her features. And I was like, oh, I oh, you can make fun. Oh, that's interesting. Like, I really never saw Asians as other. Okay. So that was not, that was compartmentalized as being alike. You are like me. We have the same color skin. You are very similar. You have smooth hair. So do I, or at least I used to. And so someone's only an other, if that's how it's presented to them, you know what I mean? Like you have to learn that like that person's not a part of your system. In my opinion, like my kids go to a school, there's Asians, there's South Asians, you know, from India, my, they don't even see that as other. So it's very normal to them to hear the different names and the cultures and the foods and the, and the this is and that's. But I love what you're saying when you're like, make the other person normalized. Watch televisions with different character, te- television shows with different characters or read books with different characters. Like you said, that the lead is a person of color or, you know, like you said, in a wheelchair or whatnot. I, I think that is huge is to normalize it to not only your kids, but to yourself to make it less taboo, less scary, less over there is huge. With that, I think that's great to have sort of that that lens of, you know, let's see what the other's experience is. But I think you touched on something really critical there about how Asian people are often seen as this, like, it's one of the most dangerous and harmful myths about Asians, the model minority. Oh, they're just like us. I mean, that basically upholds the system of, well, yep. they're okay then. That means white people and people right. who are like us are great, Yep, you know, and- And I think what it misses is the very real identity struggles that a lot of Asian people still have to go through. There's, there's like so many different nuances of Asia. Asia is not a monolith. There are like over 15 major countries, right? All of whom have their own languages, their food, their cultures, their traditions. And if we don't dig into that and understand all of those nuances and and think about their own questions of like, okay, they, the white people include me, but do they see that I'm looking different? Do they understand that I have a different cultural pull? You know, one of the things, right. We're also always asked. I mean, I, I, I wonder this because as a half Japanese person, I'm often asked, well, do you speak Japanese? Right. And I do. Mm -hmm. Say someone shows up who looks at white and they're like, oh, I'm part German and part whatever. Are they ever asked, do you speak German? Never. Like, (laughs) so there is still, even in those subtle things, a difference between people of European descent and basically the rest of the world, white people versus the rest of the world. You're assumed to have some sort of tie to your culture. Even if you're like a third generation Asian person, people often ask that and you have this conflict. I think a lot of people I speak to, at least I'm not speaking for everyone, but have this conflict of, I look this way, should I have learned that language? I feel bad that I didn't teach my kids Japanese. I'm like, oh my gosh, what disservice did I do? It's it's a weight, but I don't think white people consider their heritage with the same level of pressure or expectation because it's not placed on them. Well, and I see with the adoption, you know, of children, Asian children into white families and 
I've only heard, clearly I cannot speak on it, but I've only heard that they do, you know, or have felt like they missed out because they were never introduced to their language, their their country that they came from, be it China or Japan or Thailand or whatever. And when they looked up from the table at dinner, everyone sitting there staring at them was white. And so they went into the world mentally, physically, emotionally as a white person, you know, that's how they saw their world. But then when they looked in the mirror, they have described that they they're like, who the heck are you? Where, Where did you come from? And so now at the 11th hour of life here, they're like, you know, I really want to know who I am. I want to know my heritage. I want to know about my culture. So I'm sure there's there's both sides of this conversation. I mean, there's so many, like you said, so many nuances, but I think it's we need to individualize people a whole lot more. We just keep, you know, wide brush stroking like, oh, I look like an Asian person. They're okay. Oh, I don't look like that person. They're not okay. And like you said, it's just too much. We need to go back. People are people and mothers are mothers and women are women. And we need to make this world better, period. No, I mean, it should never be okay. Any of my listeners that you not anymore from here on out, hear these stories and well, it's not me. It's not my kid because one of these days it could be, you know, it's, it's, we got to wake up how anyone can sit there and listen to the stories on the news and not anymore have pause that it's okay that some other woman's child or some other mother or father suffers because of systemic racism and racism and bigotry and and misogyny it in it, all it's not okay we have to, we have got to learn more and do better i think it yes yes and yes and one of the problems or challenges i see that would benefit us all is you know there's this study that shows that the the biggest predictor of people's willingness to help or not help other people is the time pressure that we're under and often the excuse or the reason i guess that we hear people say is well i'm too busy and what if instead of and and to, to some degree, sure, with the increased inequity of income, there are more people who have to do more in order to make enough money to put food on the plate and, and a roof over their head. But for those who are not quite in that survival, and a lot of white people, if you're going to look at the general population, it's generally speaking more white people who are not in that struggle as much in, in this country. What if instead of pursuing money affluence, once we have a certain level that we're comfortable with, we start pursuing time affluence. It's something that I feel is so important to us as a, as a human species to be able to slow down and look at and have a conversation with our children, have a conversation with our spouse, remember to reach out to the friends who are having a hard time during COVID because mm-hmm. not everybody was affected equally by it. And, and what would that do to us as a society, if we were able to prioritize creating more time, breathing space in our schedule to take care of ourselves, I mean, how nice would it be to take a bath once a week or feel <laughs> like we could, you know, like not feel like we are holding our breath from the time we wake up to the moment our heads hit the pillow again. Such and if we do that, like, well, then we can take time to actually think, reflect and feel for another person as well. And I think mm. those systems are really interconnected. Yeah. And so when we talk about what's in it for us, I think if people want to make change, part of creating change could be slow down a little bit. Really, like if you have enough, think about what is really your priority in life, because those are all choices after survival. Anything else is a choice. 
Yeah, I love that. Well, I want to thank both of you ladies for coming on Meredith with a Y. And I want everyone to head over to Dear White Woman, W-O-M-E-N, Dear White Women, I can say this, dot com. They've got tons of information. All their podcasts are on there. And this is me, Sasha, Suzuki Graham, and Sarah Blanchard, Dear White Women, the award-winning podcasters. Thank you, ladies, so much for breaking it down with such great, plain speaking. This is the way to change everything, or at least change our lives today, to move, move the needle. I really appreciate both of you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you would like to connect on a more personal level, head over to MeredithWillits.com or on Instagram at Meredith with a Y for behind the scene footage and outtakes. Please subscribe and come back each week for more Meredith with a Y. Thanks again for listening. Cheers. Cheers.